crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello, welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brent Naktagal, your host of the Watch Jerusalem podcast. Thank you very much for listening in today. I am back in Israel after being out of the country for three weeks. Uh, my voice is a little bit under the weather, so we're going to do a, a uh, we're going to play an interview for you on today's program that I recorded just before Sukkot. And that was an interview with Professor Yosef Garfinkel, the head of the Institute of Archaeology at Hebrew University. And uh, the interview itself, actually, uh, or at least a write-up of the high points of that interview, appears in our latest edition of the Watch Jerusalem magazine. This is the latest edition again, September, October. Uh, it's on the very front cover. It's got uh, the site of Chebet Kayafa, of course, a site that Professor Garfinkel excavated uh, for almost a decade along with other Sa Gonor and others of the Israeli Antiquities Authority and other inter international organizations. Um, the cover story is found, Davidic Era Fortress. And then we have this interview. We also have our infographic as well related to some of the discoveries that took place at uh, Chibet Kayafa. Again, this is a 10th century King David period site. And in that interview, in the interview that's going to follow, we go through and he answers many questions about the debate over King David and Solomon. If you're, ever, if you're confused over this debate in archaeological circles, then this interview, I think, is a great place for you to uh, really learn uh, about how the back and forth has gone related to King David over the past 20 or so years. And what I find really interesting is that Professor Garfinkel finds himself in the middle of this debate and it's not because of his discoveries at this site, but it's never something that, that he uh, went into knowingly or, or, or that he decided that he was going to draw the battle lines, pick, it, pick this battle and go for it. It's something that kind of found him. And so this, the couple of the articles from this issue, we have a, a uh, letter from the editor or the editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, wrote an article, Lessons from Ancient Shiloh. A comment actually just came in before I went to record this. Uh, this Sunday, October 10th, <clears throat> came in 12.30 Israeli time, uh, which is about 45 minutes ago, so pretty recent. And this is somebody in Israel. They write, speaking of this article, so it shows that it's already in mailboxes in Israel. So if you're on our mailing list and haven't received it yet, just wait a couple of days and it should be there. And if it doesn't come, please email me and we'll try and find uh, find out what happened. Our email address, again, is letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Here's a comment related to this article, Lessons from Ancient Shiloh. So interesting, Gerald Flory's editorial on the Shiloh site, Shiloh site. I read it and took pleasure and sorrow in this analysis. Every situation is stated according to our merits or not, into obeying God or not. Our own life is subjected by his obedience even today. The Bible is not a myth, it's a way of life. Believing that, uh, believing that its content is the real God's word of truth. We are now approaching the temporal end of this fabulous story, and I'm glad to be part of it as a Jewess. It's evident uh, that all the nations are a part of it too. 
in this wonderful opportunity, the only condition to obey God and make him our king. Thank you, Gerald Flurry. So this, again, I wanted to read that, just came in here uh, from Israel. Uh, this is the first article in this edition of the Watch Jerusalem magazine. The next one, we cover the discovery of the Eliakim seal. We covered that on a podcast previously. Christopher Eames also has an article that summarizes the discoveries of Chebet Kayafa. Along uh, and that goes along with the write-up of this interview you're about to hear. We also have a beautiful infographic that our art department put together uh, to to show some of the key artifacts in a pictorial way. And then we also have this really interesting article. Now uh, this is by Chris Eames and Mr. Brad McDonald, the the managing editor of Watch Jerusalem, and it's about uh, a series of of interviews that Professor uh, Israel Finkelstein gave. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, related to Jerusalem, archaeology, the Bible, and Chris waded through all of them. Uh, I think there's probably about uh, 20 of these interviews. I think they're about 45 minutes, something like that, uh, along. Uh, they're online. You can find them if you want to. Uh, don't write any comments or negative comments or disagreeing comments on them, on these in- on these videos on YouTube, because they will delete your, your comments uh, if you do put them up. Um, but nevertheless, Chris went through, uh, Chris went through all these, and he, and he took to took a couple of these points that he made specifically related to Jerusalem, talking about David and Solomon's Jerusalem being a God-forsaken place, talking about his theory of, of Finkelstein's theory that the that the city of Jerusalem did not originate in the city of David, but rather on the top of the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah Hill, and then uh, worked its way down, and a few other things as well. Uh, but this this interview this uh, article is definitely worth your time, and I think it goes well, very well, uh, with uh, as a counterpart or a, a comparison to the fact based, uh, scientific based uh, approach uh, that Josef Garfinkel has with his excavations. So that is the latest edition of the Watch Jerusalem magazine. Again, get your copy if you don't have one. Write to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il to request a copy with your address and we'll send it to you. You can also go to the Watch Jerusalem website and go to the literature tab on the top right-hand side of the, of the webpage. And then you can sign up for yourself uh, right there. <clears throat> and it's probably a little bit quicker uh, to do it that way to make sure that you don't miss out on the very next issue. The next issue will be the November, December. I think it won't be going to print for another uh, three or four weeks, probably four weeks, three weeks, three or four weeks. So you have a bit of time to get your uh, get your mailing address in. Okay, so I'm going to cut away now. This is all you're going to see from me. I'm going to play for you this interview I gave uh, with Professor Garfinkel. I think this must have been uh, right at the end of August, if not the start of September, in his office at Hebrew University discussing the state of biblical archaeology and the ongoing ba- debate over King David and Solomon. Please enjoy the interview. All right, so I've just read through your 2016 book, Debating Kirbet Kaiapha, a fortified city in Judah from the time of King David. And I think the book addresses two important topics. First, it obviously gives the details of what was discovered at the site, geographic and historical context as well for it. And it also takes a look at the state of biblical archaeology as well. And I'd like to discuss both of these with you today. Uh, the state of biblical archaeology using the excavations at Chirbet Kayafa as the study. So thanks very much for doing this, first of all. It's my pleasure. Uh, Let's start with Kayafa. Can you summarize the site for us uh, briefly, uh, where it is, when it was excavated, 
and the time period that you uncovered. Chibet Kayafa is a small site. Even the name, it's not Tel, like Tel Achish or Tel Chatzor. Chirbe is mean a small site. And when you go in, at, at Chirbet Kayafa, you can see bedrock on large part of the site, which means that the occupation is not sick, but rather shallow uh, occupation history at the site. That's why it's called Chirbe. And uh, when I came to Chirbet Kayafa, I was amazed by the location because the site is overlooking the valley of Elah. And the valley of Elah is the main route leading from the coastal plain into the hill country. And it's on the border between Judah and Philistia. So you're on the border and when you have a main route crossing through. So it was very clear to me that the location is very important. And you excavated there starting back in 2007 or six, is that correct? 2005, I right. visited the site with Sarganor. Sa my student, and then uh, we decided to excavate the site, and together we excavated there for seven years, from 2007 to 2013. And in terms of the uh, main occupation layer, main discoveries of the site, perhaps you could just talk about a few of, a few of those for us. So when you start excavating, usually you have uh, some remains from the Hellenistic period, and uh, we have a lot of coin, silver coin of Alexander the Great at the site, which was very nice. But when you go down, and then this is the thick level from uh, the early 10th century BC, from the time of King David. And this is, this is obviously the, the main reason that you excavated this site, was the potential of finding, uh, finding this, no, no. <laughs> this specific layer. Not at all. When we came to the site, we didn't find much pottery on the surface. But uh, I was attracted to the site for two reasons. One is the geography, the location, mm -hmm. and the other thing is that uh, when you're looking around the site, there is very heavy fortified city, in circle, city wall encircling the old site. So on the one hand, you have bedrock in large part inside, but the periphery is encircled by a very massive uh, city wall. And it seems to me that uh, these together, it's indication that the site was not occupied for a long period. Now I didn't know what will be the period of occupation in the Iron Age. What were you expecting? I didn't expect anything. <laughs> I mean, I, think it will be, I, I was thinking that it will be a beautiful city uh, close to the surface and it will be possible in a short time to excavate large part of the city. But I have no idea if it will be 10th century, 9th century or 8th centuries BC. So when you started excavating it and you found... Um, I tell you what's happened. The first season we came only for about 10 days with a small number of people. We were in Jerusalem and every day we came to the site, we excavated and we went back to Jerusalem. So we didn't have an expedition. But already after 10 days, it was very clear that we discovered a gate and a city wall and houses. And we have the Hellenistic level under it. We have the Iron Age and on the floors, which were on bedrock, we discovered rich assemblages of destruction level. And this was very fascinating. So you have Iron Age city that was suddenly destroyed. Now the pottery from the first season, as we excavated the small area, <clears throat> it was not clear, the dating was not clear. I show it to experts like Professor Amichai Mazar and Alon de Grot, that work in Jerusalem, and they looked at it and said, it's look earlier than the Sennacherib campaign. Sennacherib campaign is 701 BC, so it's end of the 8th century BC. 
So early air might be early 8th century, maybe late 9th century. Nobody was dreaming about the 10th century. And so this is uh, the fact that you found... Maybe you can talk about the significance of finding after you went through... But I'll tell you what's happened. In the second season, as we were excavating larger area and we have a nice assemblages of uh, shared and pottery, when I, during the season I looked at the pottery and it was like the pottery in level 7 in Beersheba and level 4 at Tel Batash. Now what are these sites? These levels are very early iron to 8, like early 10th century BC. But all the, these two sites were still villages, unfortified villages. And Hebet Kayafa with the same type of pottery is already a fortified city. So this was very exciting because I really have this, you know, I feel it in your fingers that you're going to have important uh, discoveries. And the big breakthrough was only after we sent olive pits for hydrocarbon dating. Because the hydrocarbon dating gave us the date of 1000 BC. And this was a shocking moment really because we have a fortified city in Judah from the time of David. So this was, I guess, what I want to talk about is just how, how novel it is to, uh, or unique it is, to find a site uh, in the land of Israel that has such a short occupation period um, that ends somewhere in the, early, um, in the early Iron II. You know, there's horrible debate about King David, if he's a historical figure or mythological figure, and even if he's a historical figure, if he was just a Bedouin sheikh living in tent, or if he already established a kingdom. And the kingdom is not something abstract. The kingdom has borders, and the kingdom has uh, fortified cities on the borders, and the kingdom has uh, roots, and writing, and collecting tax, and you have administration. And this was the big question. If all of this already existed in the early 10th century BC. This was the debate, and our site shows that we have fortified city, we are on the border opposite the Philistine city of Gat. We discovered hundreds of jars with a finger impression, which is typical to Judah. We discovered uh, public buildings, we discovered two inscriptions, and we really completely changed the picture. So if I could take you back to the, the 10 years before you started excavating um, this site, it's like Kayafa came out at precisely the right time <laughs> to really throw um, another side to the argument that was beginning to, to gain hold in academia at different universities. Um, the paradigm, as you call it, of David in the tent, which relates to uh, low chronology. Maybe you could just relate what is this idea of low chronology and how Kayafa counters that idea based on, based on the, the carbon samples? The story is starting even before the low chronology. Till the beginning of the uh, 1980s, people accepted the biblical uh, tradition as uh, preserving accurate historical memories. And the big change happened uh, at <clears throat> that time, about 40 years ago, when you have the Copenhagen School and the later Sheffield, and nowadays all over the world, and people start questioning how much historical memories are really embedded in the Old Testament. And some people want to say zero, okay? While before some people believe it's 100% and some people said zero, and now horrible debate started how much uh, history, history is embedded in the biblical text. And you can see that this uh, group or this uh, school of minimalists went in evolution. And you can see that there are three phases in the evolution of the minimalist school. The first uh, paradigm 
was that everything is mythological. David never existed, Solomon never existed, there was never a temple in Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. But in 1993, Professor Avram Biran excavated at Tel Dan, and he found his Aramaic uh, stila, probably written by Hazael, and this Aramaic king said, I killed 70 kings, I killed a king from Israel and a king from the house of David. And the house of David, it's mean dynasty created by David. <clears throat> and this is about 100 to 120 years after David. So you cannot say anymore that David is a mythological figure because he is mentioned in historical source outside of the biblical uh, tradition. So the mythological paradigm collapsed. Three years later came the low chronology paradigm. And the idea was <clears throat> that, okay, there was somebody called David, but in the time of David, there was no kingdom. Here we have a sociological uh, process. First, you have a tribal community, the time of the judges. This is what archaeologists call Iron One. And then you have the kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, and this is the time of the monarchy, where you have fortified city, administration, and kingdoms. And the big question is, when this sociological process took place? If it took place at 1000 BC, it's like the biblical tradition, the time of David. But law chronology want to say that it's happened only 100 to 200 years later, first in the kingdom of Israel, and in Judah only 300 years later. And that's why it's called law chronology. So David is, a mythologic, is not mythological anymore, but it's bypassed. Okay, law chronology is bypassed the fact that David is a, a, a real figure and not historical and not mythological figure. So essentially, you mean it, it puts you know the the more monumental structures or the start of this changeover in material culture towards something that's a, pol a political body. It puts David in the judges kind of scenario. Um, and then that's what chronology does. But your excavation kind exactly. of says, well, that's not the case. So here, this was the, the big debate about chronology when uh, urbanism started in Israel and Judah, and nobody was talking about the 10th century, people debating if it's 9th century or 8th century or late 8th century in Judah. And this was more or less the situation. And uh, thousands of scholars, biblical scholars, historian, archeologists, already believed in law chronology. There was even a project run here in this institute by, by one of the archaeologists, and uh, they checked about 400 examples of hydrocarbon dating, 400 examples, and most of them gave date in the 9th century BC. So they already wrote an article that hydrocarbon supporting the law chronology. Okay, now I'm entering the picture. <laughs> 2007. I don't know if you know, but before excavating Kribet Kayafa, I excavated prehistoric sites. I excavated sites of the Neolithic period, the beginning, beginning of agriculture. So I was never involved with this debate. And then 2007, we came to Kribet Kayafa. 2008, we already have part of the city with houses and Kazmat city wall and a gate and the inscription, the Kribet Kayafa famous Ostracon, and we sent olive pits for hydrocarbon dating. And the big surprise that nobody expected. I mean, it was really shocking in a way that this site is 1000 BC. So it's the time of King David. And in this moment, we have a fortified city in Judah from the time of David. So you cannot argue anymore that urbanism started in this region in the 9th or 8th century BC, because it started in the early 10th century BC. 
And then 10 days later, there was already an article in an internet journal that claimed that Chir Bet Kayafa is a Philistine site. So it does, doesn't belong to David. Perhaps I could just quote, in 2017, you wrote an, a paper entitled The Ethnic Identification of Kirbet Kayafa, Why It Matters, and you wrote this. You said, these scholars have already held for 10 to 20 years the position that the kingdom of Judah was established only in the late 9th or 8th centuries BCE. In other words, Kirbet Kayafa's new data challenged their earlier conclusions. In this case, they have two options in front of them, either to alter their old approaches or to hold on to them and suggest a new interpretation for the ethnic identification of Kibbet Kayafa's population. Maybe you can elaborate on this. It's a kind of patchwork. If you look at the minimalist, <clears throat> the earliest minimalist has a very good methodology. They said, okay, the Bible is not history, it's all mythological, so we cannot write a history of ancient Israel. Which is, okay, it's, it's a, a complete uh, approach. You can agree or disagree, but it says logic, its own logic inside it. But once you have this uh, tell done stila, and David is mentioned, this paradigm collapsed. And what the law chronology did is only patchwork, you know, bypassing uh, tell done stila. And now came Chirbet Kayafa, which proves that law chronology is not working. So you have another patch saying that this is. An, about the ethnic identification, the first idea was that this is a Philistine site. Then some people said it's a Canaanite site. Other people said it's Israelite, built by King Saul. And we think that it's a Dujan site. So you have four uh, different uh, suggestions about who lived in Chirbet Kayafa. And the question is, how do you decide? What is the methodology? And the methodology is comparative analysis. We, we, are take, we took various aspects that were found at the site of Chirbet Kayafa and we compare it. We compare it with Canaanite sites, we compare it with site in Philistia, we compare it to site in the northern kingdom of Israel, and we compare it to site in Judah, like Arad and Be'er Sheva. And if you look at the urban planning of Chirbet Kayafa, where you have Kazmat city wall and houses abutting the Kazmat, there are five examples like this. In Tel Natsbe, near Ramallah, Beit Shemesh, Kirbet Kayafa, Telbet Mirsim, and Be'er Sheva. All of them are in Judah. You don't have even one Philistine site or one Canaanite site or one site in the Kingdom of Israel that has this urban planning. Then we took the animal bones. We have hundreds of thousands of animal bones. We don't, have even, we don't have even one pig bone. If you go to Canaanite site, you can see that 4 or 5% of the animal bones are pigs. If you go to Philistine sites, you can see that up to 20% of the animal bones are pigs. So our site is not Canaanite and not Philistine according to the, the animal bones. So this, is, this was pretty essential to, because as you said, the first paradigm collapsed when Tel Dan Steely was found. David's real. The second paradigm collapses, low, low chronology, because you found urbanization in 3,000 years ago, the time of King David. So then people come along and say that, okay, you're right, you did find urbanization, but it's not King David. This site doesn't belong to Judah. And you say, you're saying here that your site, based on all these different parameters, matches Judah more than it does any other uh, ethnic group or, or material culture of other ethnicities. And also you should note that the people who said that it's Philistine, the same scholar, by the way, four years later, said it's Canaanite, 
So the Philistine, nobody take this option anymore. No one takes the Philistine option. And what happened that scholars who said that it's Israelite or Canaanite or Philistine, they didn't give arguments. Mm -hmm. They didn't say it's Philistine because of ABC. Right. They didn't say it belonged to the kingdom of Israel because of ABC. They just wrote it because they wanted to be Israelite or Canaanite or Philistine. Right. Yeah, this is, this, you talk about this in that same 2017 article. You said this, placing the current debate in its accurate place within the history of research clearly indicates that the subject was dealt with in a polemical way rather than using, uh, using a balanced scientific view. Can you just explain in layman's terms kind of what you mean by that? I think you're getting to that point. What's happened with law, the minimalist, it's become a religion. If something is written in the Bible, it must be opposite. And this is, you can see article by article, that they are debating every aspect in the biblical tradition, whether it's fit or doesn't fit the data. And people should be uh, aware that sometimes the archaeology in the biblical tradition don't match 100%. Because every historical uh, narrative sometimes has its own view and so on and so forth. And what the minimalist is trying to do is to destroy 100% of the biblical tradition. And this is methodologically a wrong thing. Because if you said white, they would say black. But if you said black, they will say white. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how do you build scientific theories? The way I understand it, you take A and B and C and D and then you build a theory. But what the minimalist school doing, they're saying, we don't have A, we don't have B, we don't have C, so they built a theory. Mm -hmm. But once you find A or B or C, their theory is immediately collapsed. Mm -hmm. And this is the wrong methodology. You cannot build your theories on the lack of data. You should build your theories on what you have, not on what you don't have. Right. See, for example, I, I, for example, this uh, radiocarbon project, which took 400 examples, and all of them, or most of them, came from the 9th century BC. How come Herbert Kayafa changed the picture? You know why? Because all these 400 samples were taken from the Kingdom of Israel. Mm -hmm. The site which were excavated at the time were in Dor, and Chatzor, and Megiddo, and uh, Bet Shan, and, and Rehov, and other sites. And they took site in the Kingdom of Israel, and indeed, even according to the biblical text, right. the, kingdom, the kingdom of Israel has been established in the late 10th. So most of the sites where they were built and fortified are in the 9th century. So of course you get 9th century from site in Israel. But they took it to prove that the Bible is wrong. Mm -hmm. They didn't look at the geography. We have regionality. Judah started at the 10th century and Israel started at the 9th century. It's like me taking Herbert Kayaf and said, okay, we have 10th century BC, so the kingdom of Israel also started in the 10th century. It will be a mistake. You need to date every region by its own area. You cannot predict from one area to the other. Right. This is, some, this is my favorite part of your book, uh, these few sentences. You, say, you write this, I think it was a page 101, 102 in that area. You said, since so much detailed research in biblical archaeology has already been done on almost every aspect, it's hard to contribute to a new paradigm. Some scholars have found a way to overcome this situation by constructing alternative hypotheses that are based on a lack of data on the one hand and re rejection of existing data on the other. 
In this way, original paradigms can be offered and the sky or the author's audacity is the limit. Such works would not have been published a generation ago when scientific standards were more stringent. Today, however, in the postmodern intellectual atmosphere, there is much more room for original ideas, even if they are not well-founded. Thus, in our era, there is no clear-cut boundary between science, science fiction, and wishful thinking. So it seems to me what you're saying with this is that the study of archaeology is actually becoming less scientific in some ways than it was a generation ago. Uh, they're not adhering to the scientific method that was, I guess, championed uh, a generation ago. I think you take it too, too, uh, <clears throat> too far away. Scientifically, we are working better. Mm -hmm. We are collecting the animal bones and we are sending uh, pottery for residue analysis and we're using radiocarbon dating and our scientific method becomes stronger and stronger and our in the involvement of archaeology and uh, sciences, biology, botany and so on is stronger and stronger all the time. But what we became crazy is not the archaeology, the interpretation. The interpretations today is whatever, you can do whatever you want to do. And that's what you see taking place? You see, you see more, more archaeological theory that's based on a whim or an idea rather than, rather than evidence is what I'm asking. Rather than archaeological evidence, you see more of it being um, a hypothetical construction. Because people want to... One of, one of the main problems in science today is I cannot write an article and say I agree with Albright or I agree with Egeliadin. But I can write an article, I don't agree with Albright. I don't agree with Egeliadin. And this is what's happened. That people taking new data and old data and they're creating a new hypothesis and said, I don't agree with this, I don't agree with this, and I, I'm suggesting something new. The question is, what is the value of these new ideas? If they have roots, or it's all, you know, out here. And you, you in, your, in your book, you kind of... You talk about how this postmodern intellectual atmosphere has affected the sciences, and I think in our in your office a few weeks ago you talked about how the I guess the lack of the idea that there is a truth is has even infected or affected archaeological discussion and interpretation. Could you just talk about that? Look, all the field of humanities, including literature and uh, history and archaeology and biblical studies and uh, other aspects uh, of the humanities. If you don't have it true, you can do whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. But it's of course there is true. There is some true. The question is how close we can get to the true. This is my view. And I think that by having more investigation and more accurate radiocarbon dating and excavating larger uh, part of a site, and having more inscription and more uh, a metal object, we can know more and more about how people lived. And then we can have better understanding. And this is one of the things that I did. I work in Chibet Kayafa, we excavated about one quarter of the city. We work in uh, Lachish, we found a new city wall from the time of Rehoboam. And according to the biblical text, Rehoboam fortified uh, Lachish. But without excavation, you cannot find these, uh, the data. Mm -hmm. So I think that archeology, span is the main source of new data for understanding the biblical tradition. And do you feel like your, your just personally, your, um, 
were you surprised by the accuracy uh, of the biblical text from David's time onwards through Rehoboam's time? You said you weren't looking for it. You were just excavating it, this site, because for the reasons you gave. And then you do find you wading right into the middle of David and Solomon because of the site. Did that surprise you or just did you think that, well, I was probably... Is probably right because you saw the way that the the field was going. So it was a rebellion against that. What was your personal uh, thoughts? Well, it didn't surprise me because I didn't come with any biased idea that the Bible is hundred percent history or the Bible is all fiction. So I, I I see myself more as a scientist. Personally, I'm not a religious person, so the Bible is not a holy. I know that for billions of people in the world, the Bible is a holy text. And I understand it. <clears throat> and for me, it's, it's historical text. I'm not a religious person. <clears throat> so I'm not trying to prove the Bible or disprove the Bible. I'm not, I want to see. I want to know for myself. I want to know what was really happened. Mm-hmm. It's really scientific curiosity or personal curiosity. Right. I want to know what's happened. I don't care about low chronology, high chronology, maximalist, minimalist. I want to know the truth. This is my motivation. I, Yossi Garfinkel, I want to know what's really happened. This is my motivation. And as far as David from the 10th century, based and on what, that scientific view, what would your summation be so far? So what I know is that we're working in Tibet Kayafa and we found a beautiful city from the time of King David with two inscriptions and administration and writing it. It was really a wonderful discovery. And then I went to Lachish because I want to know more about the 10th century BC. And uh, in Lachish, we have the, the, the tradition about King Rehoboam, Rehoboam fortified Lachish. So I was wondering if there is indeed fortification in Lachish from the time of Rehoboam. This will be late 10th century BC. And indeed, in the excavation, we found a new city wall, which was, known, was not known before. And radiocarbon dating that we have from Oxford University show us that the dating is the end of the 10th century and the first half of the 9th century BC. So this city was really built by King Rehoboam. And then we also have the shrine model. We have a nice uh, <coughs> model made from stone, about 30 centimeter tall. And you can see near the roof, the beams organized three together. And the door do- is uh, decorated with recessed uh, entrance. And if you read the biblical description of Solomon Palace and Solomon Temple, you can see the same features appearing also in the biblical text. Mm-hmm. So in this way, I contributed to David, to Solomon, and Rehoboam, the first three kings of Jerusalem, and we covered the whole 10th century BC. David in the beginning, Solomon in the middle, and Rehoboam in the last part of the 10th century. And so now you are done with Kayafa. You just excavated Herbert Arai, uh, and and you are hopefully con- continuing on this uh, 10th century uh, journey to discover what's there. So we came to Lachish to look for the later part of the 10th century. But a year or two later, it turned out that the nearby site of Khirbet el-Rai, it's only two miles between the two. We have on the surface of Khirbet el-Rai the same pottery that was found at Khirbet Kayafa. And if you have the same pottery in two sites, it means that they coexist with each other. So we went to Khirbet el-Rai to find a level from the time of King David. And we were hoping, of course, to find a fortified city, but we didn't. It turned out to be a rather small 
level from the time of King David, but the strength of the site of Hirbet al-Rai is not the 10th century, it's the 11th and 12th centuries BC. It was a, a major uh, city or town in the region, and we identified it with Tsiklag, the site that was ruled by the kingdom of Gat and then given to David, and uh, the location and the geography and the find suit very nice the period of David. So just one final thing. Do you feel like your, what you've done over the past uh, 15 years now, do you feel like that's moved the needle back towards, uh, let's say, David's time, Solomon's time from the, from the 10th century, from the biblical source being more accurate? And, and maybe there's more in the archaeological field that are being swayed back to that premise rather than uh, following in low chronology or continuing hard on that? I see that even scholars who supported the low chronology, low chronology and said that everything was in the 8th century BC, now they're moving it to the 9th century BC. <laughs> so this, instead of 300 years gap, it's now 200 years gap. And I think that we still need to have a, a large-scale archaeological project in the Kingdom of Judah and to find more data about the 10th and 9th centuries BC. This is what I hope to do. And of course, the big question is what's happened in Jerusalem? This is the capital of the kingdom. So expecting to have, you know, monumental architecture and fortifications in Jerusalem. But no, what is the main problem in Jerusalem? The city was established by David and it's flourished 400 years till it was destroyed by the Babylonian. So you don't have destruction levels. But Hirbet Kayafa was built in the time of David and destroyed after 20, 30 years. So you have a nice destruction level. Hibet Kayaf is actually Pompeii from the time of David. You will never find it in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was not destroyed. And then came Sennacherib at 701 BC and destroyed level 3 at Lachish and many other sites. But he didn't destroy Jerusalem. So you never go to find a nice level from 701 in Jerusalem because Sennacherib didn't destroy Jerusalem. So when you excavate Jerusalem, what do you have? You have the final destruction of the Babylonian. But all the earlier 400 years of the kingdom of Judah, you will not find levels in Jerusalem. You can find one house or one building, but you will not find nice destruction level all over the site. So from archaeological point, for the people who lived in Jerusalem, it was great. It was not destroyed. But from archaeological point of view, it's very hard. It's harder to, to date something yeah. to that window of time. But how could you find exactly these 20 years or 40 years or, or whatever? So I think that the work should be together. You're excavating the capital, you're excavating the site on the periphery, and together you will, we will have a good understanding of the kingdom of Judah. Okay, thank you very much for your time. Sure, it's my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Professor Yosef Garfinkel of Hebrew University. If you'd like to send some feedback to me or even to him, I could pass that along. Again, write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Thanks again for listening and I'll talk to you next week.